five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK, sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. My guest today from Nottingham, England, is consultant clinical psychologist, Dr. Emma Coyne. Dr. Emma is a specialist renal psychologist and has worked in renal for 13 years. Prior to working in renal, Dr. Emma worked in general mental health services. Dr. Emma has a particular interest in acceptance and commitment therapy. And Dr. Emma joins me today to explore the subject of chronic illness grieving the South. Hi and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Dr. Emma? Oh, great. Thank you. It's good to have you on the podcast. I've really been looking forward to this interview because, as you know, I like Diary of a Kidney Warrior to cover all aspects of kidney disease and I like to give a patient and a clinician view of the different topics that we talk about. So. Last episode, episode 61, I spoke with Judy Aiken about the subject of chronic illness, grieving the self, which is an amazing interview. If you haven't caught it yet, please do check out episode 61 of Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And now part two to that interview is now with Dr. Emma. So we're going to talk about the same topic, but from a clinician's point of view. So I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. So let's begin. So chronic illness, grieving the self. What does that mean to you? I guess when anybody gets a diagnosis, it is a complete shock to the system. It is unexpected. You're not expecting to be suddenly told you've got a life-changing illness. And with any big event, when we respond to that, we end up having a grief response to that. We're very familiar with a grief response because most of us have had the experience of losing somebody that we love. And after you lose someone you love, you go through a process and you go through a process of stages where you're feeling, you know, the shock and the disbelief and the denial of what's happened. And then you experience lots of different emotions, such as anger and guilt and sadness and anxiety. And eventually you come out the other side of that and meet sort of acceptance and hope for the future. And we're very familiar with that process when somebody dies. But that's the same process that people go through when they meet a diagnosis of a health condition. So what exactly is that process? I mean, we talk about the stages. So what exactly are those stages? So it's really interesting. So there's 
there's different models of the grief process. So, you know, if you Google the grief process, you'll see people talk about five stages or they'll talk about seven stages. Or, and I think one of the things that's really important to say is that certainly my experience working clinically with people, this isn't a linear process. It's not a straight process. You don't start and then you, you have shock and then you move to disbelief and then you move to denial. Often people go forward and back within those particular stages and as they move along. You know, when we lose someone, when someone dies, and it's quite a significant person in our life, that process can take two years to come out the other side of. Yeah, we don't often immediately think, because I've got a chronic illness diagnosis, that now I'm in a grief process. But actually, it's exactly the same process. In terms of the stages, it will depend a lot on the situation and how people find out about their illness. There's a big difference between maybe somebody who's known that they've got a difficulty with their kidneys and they've known that for quite a while. And then it deteriorates slowly over a period of time and they have lots of support to find out about their options and make decisions. There's a big difference in how people are going to respond to somebody who isn't feeling well, goes to the GP, gets a phone call and gets told we need to to go straight to hospital because your kidneys have failed. There is a range of responses depending on the situation somebody finds themselves in. I think it's so true. There is a difference with how you find out. I mean, for me, it was like not feeling well over a period of time to the point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I went to the hospital to get myself checked out. And even though I had been feeling unwell, when the doctor said that I had to be admitted straight away, that was still a shock to the system. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm right. There is something wrong. I honestly thought that she was just going to say, oh, here's some paracetamol or ibuprofen and, and send me on my way. So to be like, oh, no, there is something seriously wrong. That was like the first shock. And then a week into being in the hospital, because they didn't know what was going on with me, I was told my kidneys were failing. And it was like a massive shock because Mm. I was the one at work who didn't have the tea and coffee. I'd be drinking water. I don't drink alcohol. I, I don't smoke. You know, all these different things that you associate with having good kidney health. I was exercising four times a week. I was eating well. All these things that I, at that time, would, I thought, well, yeah, I'm doing everything I can possibly do to take care of myself and be healthy and wham, I get this news. So, yeah, when you get that shock news, it really is quite a lot to take in and process. And for some people, very quickly, there's the stage of denial is very quick. You know, it's like, oh, I can't really believe this has happened to me. Maybe it hasn't happened to me. Are they sure? And move on to, oh, yes, it has happened. But some people get stuck there. You know, so we we sometimes see people who actually have got very low kidney function and they've come through because their blood tests have picked up a problem. But actually they're saying is, I feel okay. I don't feel shocking. You know, I don't really need dialysis, do I? I'm fine, actually. You know, I'm okay. And of course, 
the medical team who are looking after them are really worried about them because they're thinking, gosh, they've got just such a low GFR. This person needs to be having dialysis. They can't really not be experiencing symptoms. But if you think about what you just said, you said that, you know, you'd had symptoms for quite a while and it was like, is this really something wrong or should I go and ask somebody? And so most people will have had that experience, but may well have concluded that there isn't anything wrong and they've just got used to it. And so denial in terms of this process can be just denying their own physical symptoms, or it conversely could be denying the severity of the illness, you know, that actually this is something that I need to take seriously. So it can look like in different forms for different people. Often I think of the next set of emotions, the sort of guilt, anger, sadness, anxiety. If I draw it out for somebody, I actually don't put it as a linear curve. I put that as a circle, you know, that people tend to go round and round and round with. You know, I think of it a bit like a washing machine and that for people going through that process, they one day they might find themselves very angry about what's happened to them. And yet on another day, they might be actually really anxious about what the future is going to hold. And different things can trigger off those emotions. And people often will stay in that place for quite a while. And in many ways, it's important that people do stay in that place because you have to sit with those emotions and go through those emotions. If you push them away or try and get rid of them, that's where we get stuck in that grief process. I think it's important what you said to recognise that it isn't linear, it isn't a straight line, because I think people think that once I've felt the denial and gone to the anger or whatever the next stage is, then I should be on the next stage by now or I should be at this stage by now. And that actually it's a regression if I start to feel angry again if I've already worked through the anger and they might feel like, oh, I haven't made any progress and there is something seriously wrong with me because I'm not at X, Y or Z stage. So that analogy about the washing machine and things going around, it's a really good way of making it clear in my mind that actually I might need to go through that cycle however many times I need to, to come out at the other end stronger. So... Yeah, I've learned a lot through that. Thank you for that. If you think about, you know, when somebody dies, if we think back to your more traditional grief process, that is a cycle. You get to the birthday of the person and you may have very strong reactions and emotions. You get to the anniversary of the death. You get to the second year anniversary of the death and it might not feel quite so raw as it did the first year. I think that's really helpful because when you think of that, that makes sense. That's what we all experience. So why wouldn't it be any different with a diagnosis of a chronic illness or diagnosis of CKD? There are going to be events that happen that will trigger strong emotions. And that is completely normal response to what is a great big change in your life. So what is next? So as you're navigating this grief cycle, what is next? So at some point, we move into a place more of acceptance. 
and with that hope, you know, hope for the future and adjusting to the future, looking different. As we work through the emotions and the feelings, we can come to a place where you can accept what's coming at you. Often our natural response with difficult feelings and difficult thoughts is to push them away. We don't want them in our head. You know, you said it before, you know, I shouldn't be feeling like this. So we want to try and push that feeling away. But actually, we're not very good at doing that pushing away. If we take thoughts, for example, if I say to you right now, Dee, as you're sitting there, whatever you do, as we're talking, please don't think about a pink elephant. (laughs) Now, absolutely, don't think about the colour of the pink elephant's trunk and don't think about the colour of the pink elephant's tail. (laughs) Yeah. I'm thinking about a pink elephant. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what our minds do. Because if you say to yourself, don't do something, we do it. So saying to yourself, don't be angry, I can't be angry, doesn't make that feeling change or move on or pass. You know, saying I shouldn't be thinking this, stop thinking this. It doesn't change that. So the process of acceptance it involves actually sitting with and allowing those difficult thoughts and feelings. So how do we have those thoughts and feelings without being self-destructive? Yeah. So I'm going to borrow from a therapist called Russ Harris, an example from him, and he talks about the four A's of acceptance. He sees that that there's a process, you know, that we go through. And if, for example, if we use that process for an emotion, you take a difficult emotion. Your first step is to actually acknowledge. So the first day is acknowledge that feeling, that emotion, name it. Where in your body are you feeling it? What's it like? What are you going to call that feeling? And then actually acknowledging it to yourself, you know, I'm noticing sadness or here is anger. And that can be challenging for people because sometimes people haven't got a name for it, you know, and it may be just here is a strong emotion. (laughs) And then what sort of emotion is this? Is this sadness? It's a sadness type feeling. It doesn't matter if we don't initially have the words for it, just acknowledging that that emotion is there and that's the first part of it. I guess then the second A is allow. So often we don't want it. Yeah, we don't want to be angry. We don't want to be anxious, but it doesn't really matter whether you approve of it or not, it's there. Yes. And that you just allow it to be, you know, that's what it is. That's how I'm feeling at this moment. The third part, the third A, is accommodate. And this is about opening up and 
making room for that feeling. You know, if we imagine that that some people might think that their feelings are very negative, they you know might even think you know it's a bit of a monster. You know, using that idea, we'd actually invite the monster to have a cup of tea with us and sit down and make friends with it. You know, it's welcome to come in. It's welcome to go out. I'm just going to sit with it. You know, it's really interesting what happens with anxiety, for example, because often people get anxious and then they're anxious about being anxious. And then they do something to try and avoid it or make it go away or leave the situation that's making them anxious. But if you just stayed there and just sat with it, eventually it passes, it moves off. But we often try and avoid it or do something with it. We don't give it that space to just sit with it and freely allow it. And the last day from uh, Russ Harris's approach. So, is, sorry, before you go to well, the, before you go to the last day. Sorry to interrupt, but how do you allow without it taking over you? Like, if I allow myself to be angry and I'm sitting in that anger, how do I stop it from taking over me and being destructive? So if you notice that, that's what your mind's just said to you. So that thought your mind has just said to you is, if I sit with that anger and allow myself to feel it, it might take over me, I might become destructive. And so that's your brain being really, really helpful, saying, don't do this because this could all go badly wrong. But if you listen to those thoughts and stick with that and avoid it and distract yourself and move away from it actually what you're doing is avoiding it and it's not going to go away because it's the same it's coming back to the pink elephant again that the more you try and not have something the more it comes up but it's so challenging just that thought of actually just staying with that feeling rather than pushing it away distracting from it Immediately, your mind comes up with all these reasons that it would be absolutely terrible. And it's the same with the anxiety example I just used. So if you've got somebody who's having a panic attack in a situation, leaving the situation, they go, right, well, that helped. You know, I felt better when I wasn't in the situation. But actually, if they'd stayed in the situation, probably with some support to sit with that feeling, actually, the feeling would have passed you know, you, you don't stay anxious for much longer than at a really high level for much longer than about half an hour before it just starts to wane away. If all we do when we meet a strong emotion is avoid it or distract from it, you never get to know that you actually can sit with it and tolerate it and allow it. If you go back to the grief process for somebody who's lost a loved one, they actually may well engage in activities to encourage grief and sit with it. You know, they might look through photographs or put albums together or go through their loved one's things or talk about memories of them. Or, and we encourage people to do that because actually what we want people to do is experience those feelings and go through them. And it's through that process of experiencing that you come out the other side. Wow, that's really powerful. 
So the the final the final one, yes, number four. Russ's number four is appreciate, and that is every painful emotion is there for a reason. It's carrying some valuable information to you. It might be asking you to face up to something. It might be asking you to address or deal with a a situation. It might be asking you to change something. It might be reminding you of something really important. It might be reminding you that you need to look after yourself a bit better at this time. Russ writes about it. He says that we need to uncover the wisdom in the emotion and take time to appreciate it. That's really powerful. That's really, really powerful. And it kind of turns on its head a lot of things that many people, when they're trying to encourage you while you're going through it, will say, oh, just think positive. Just forget about it. Just get over it. Just, you know, whatever follows after the just. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's turning that on its head. It's important to actually allow yourself to feel those things. And yeah, that is so, so powerful. So powerful. So the next part, so after you've acknowledged and allowed and accommodated and appreciated... What comes next? Yeah. Well, then it's about having a choice about what you're going to do with the next bit of time in your life. If you hadn't done this process, you might have met that difficult emotion and gone straight into doing avoidance, distraction, make it go away. And some of the things that we do for that actually aren't very helpful. They help in the short term, but in the long term, you know. So some people might go and eat something or drink something or engage in an activity that isn't harmful, but, you know, actually isn't really accomplishing very much. You know, it's to just drown out the feelings, really. And so some of the things people will do will be harmful of ways of avoiding it. And some of them will be benign, but not necessarily making you take any steps towards doing things that make you feel better about yourself or your situation. And when we're so caught up in the emotion that when you meet the emotion, the first thing you do is distract or avoid, you haven't got any space to make a choice. So you don't have a space to go, okay, that's what I'm feeling. That's why I'm feeling, okay, I'm feeling this at the moment because, you know, I was just talking to a friend and she's going off on a holiday and she's just booked it last minute. And I'm a dialysis patient and I can't book a holiday last minute. And actually the reason I'm feeling, I'm feeling really sad because of that. And rather than just avoiding or distracting, then thinking, okay, right, well, that's what's that sadness about? Well, that sadness is that I can't just go on a holiday. But okay, well, but can I still go on a holiday? And actually, do I need a holiday? And, and is the reason the sadness there is because I haven't had a holiday? Yeah, but doing a holiday is really difficult. It's not straightforward. I've got to organise everything. I've got to arrange everything. 
And then that's another set of difficult emotions to sit with. But actually, if what the person really values, their value is a holiday because what they value is spending time with their family, then that's important enough to motivate them to come through those emotions. So I suppose if you can sit with those feelings and emotions, it then gives you a space to think about whether you just want to avoid or distract or whether you want to move through those difficult feelings to do something that might be more important that helps you. So the theme I'm hearing again and again is don't avoid. Face it. It's not easy, but face it because you're going to be better off in the long run. Absolutely. And actually, if it's too much to face it on your own, there's support available. That's where uh, a helping person comes in. It could be a a therapist, it could be a counsellor, it could be a psychologist, it could be a social worker. But it also could be talking to your nurse, talking to your doctor. You know, it's so important to get support. You're not on your own to deal with all of these emotions. And if people find themselves really caught up in that washing machine of emotions and they can't get themselves out of it, that's when getting support is absolutely essential. So, and speaking from experience as well, how does the process of grief impact on somebody's identity and how they see themselves? Yeah. I think it's a really interesting question because I guess you will have heard this from people. Often people say, I'm not the person I used to be. Yes, I hear that a lot and I feel that myself. Yeah. I used to be this person who did X, Y and Z and now I'm not and I'm not that person. And some people will, it's almost like they are taking on a identity of the illness I am the illness and lose a sense of you have an illness but you are so much more than the illness when we think about ourselves ourself it's made up of different bits you know we have a physical self I'll use you as an example Dee but you know if I said to you Dee go and cut off your fingernail are you still the same person now you've lost your fingernail yes yeah okay and if you had a bit of a nasty accident at home and you lost a finger are you still the same person without a finger god forbid but yes yes I'm getting worse now (laughs) and if if you're in a more terrible accident and you lost your arm (laughs) Are you still D? Again, God forbid, but yes. Yes. Okay. And if we had a horrific accident and you <laughs> lost your legs, <laughs> are you still D? Again, God forbid, but yes, I'm still okay. the same person. So the person you are is still the same, even though there are changes to your physical self. Right. And I think it's important because what we almost start to think our physical selves are who we are. And I guess then that moves on to the next question of who are we and what is this sort of sense of self that we have? 
And we've got different aspects of ourselves. We've got a thinking self. If I, I'm going to go back to my pink elephant again. If I say to you, <laughs> Dee, I want you to just sit there and try and not think about a pink elephant. Okay. And of course, what's happening in your brain right now? I can see ears, I can see a trunk, and I can see the feet. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a part of you noticing you, trying not to think about it, and noticing that you're thinking about it. Yes. Yeah? And that's a part of you that's separate to your thinking. It's a part of you that's observing and noticing your thinking. And we could do exactly the same with your feeling self, with your feelings and experiences. We could take an experience, if you think in your mind, a time recently where you might have felt quite angry. And if you just bring it to mind, you don't need to tell me about it, you just bring it to mind. And then just notice where you're feeling that feeling in your body right now can you could you name where you sense that feeling sometimes you feel anger in your chest in your chest yeah and there's a part of you noticing where you're feeling that feeling you are not the feeling yeah you are not the thoughts you are not your physical body the sense of you who is D is more than those things. They are parts, but they are not all of it. I was going to use a metaphor to explain it. I'd draw you a picture of the sky and the land. So imagine the land and then we've got the sky moving up. And then within the sky is the weather. So let's paint, <laughs> paint this picture with lots of weather. What weather have we got in our sky? What have we got? Rain, clouds, thunder. Yeah. But sometimes there's sunshine as well. Yeah. It might be um, a nice breeze. Yeah. Might... A bit of wind coming through. Yeah. Occasionally a bit of hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're all, if you imagine, they're all our emotions, our experiences, our feelings, you know. And if you were in a plane, and you took off, and you go through the weather, what happens as your plane's going through the weather? As you're going through the clouds, then it's completely different above the clouds. It's it is. All you, all you see is the sun. Yeah. You've just got the sky. It just goes on forever. Yeah. Yeah, now. And that sky, that's who you are. That's the sense of you that is more than your physical self than your thoughts than your feelings that's the sense of you that's with you before you had a diagnosis of kidney failure and is still with you now you've had a diagnosis of that and I think it's really important for people to keep a hold of that sense that wider sense it can be really comforting to people to actually get back in touch with the the person that they have always been and that they're the, a person who has values of things that are really important to them, that they can still do and still live out in their lives despite having the uh, 
diagnosis of uh, kidney disease. Again, that is so powerful because for me, part of the chronic illnesses that I have is tiredness. And sometimes I can be very tired, extremely tired. And when people would ask me, how are you? My response would always be, you know, I'm tired. To the point where tiredness felt like my identity. Yeah. Like D was no longer and my name was now tired (laughs) instead of all the many things, who I am as a person and what I bring to the table. All I felt that I brought to the table was tiredness. So what you're saying is so important. There is so much more and it is so important to keep that in mind because that's just one. When you're dealing with multiple side effects of your chronic illness, it is so difficult to see beyond that because you're bombarded with so much. But like you said, above those clouds is the sky and the sun. So I really like that analogy. Mm. It's helpful, I think, to get in touch with it. Sometimes we get so focused on our achievements and on what we can't do anymore. I'm feeling unwell, I can't do this. I used to be able to do that. You know, for example, somebody might, have because unfortunately with kidney disease often there's lots of other illnesses that come along with it it's not just one on its own and so you might find somebody who actually physically they have deteriorated in terms of what they can do maybe they are not fit enough to be able to go out or in the same way they can't go for long walks or even that you know I can remember somebody once saying you know, she loved going out with her grandchildren to sort of parks and just having time and spending time and that she just couldn't walk that far anymore. And now she couldn't do that. And what was really interesting about that is that she could go, but she didn't want to use a mobility scooter. Because if she used the mobility scooter, that was somehow giving into the illness or acknowledging that she had lost the ability to do that thing. And it's a really good example of that grief process and those emotions, because to be able to come through that situation and actually use a mobility scooter, she needed to be able to cope with the anxiety and the sadness and all of those feelings associated with the loss of her physical independence and the courage to be able to try something outside her comfort zone that felt very uncomfortable to do. And yet I remember when she did, they went on holiday and they hired a mobility scooter for the week and she came back and she was life-changing because She was able to walk along the seafront along with her family. She was in the mobility scooter, but they would walk along with her. They got fish and chips. She was able to do all the things that she valued that were part of her sense of self, the things that were important to her. She was still able to do all of those things because she had been able to address those difficult emotions and feelings and work through them and not avoid them. And to see herself accepting 
the changes in her physical self, we talked about the different selves, she hadn't wanted to accept those changes in her physical self. And accepting those changes for her meant that her whole self was, that was the end in her mind. But actually, when she accepted those changes in her physical self, she was able to still get in touch with all the other things that were important to her and that she valued. Again, and I know I've said this a few times now, but that is really, really powerful what you've just said. Because for me personally, prior to CKD, I was training four times in the gym and Mm. part of what I was doing at the gym was lifting weights. And I was kind of building up the weight that I was lifting and I was lifting heavier than any of the other women in the gym. So I saw at that time, so I saw myself as being very physically strong and I was building up to try and make sure that on the chart, because there was actually a chart, that I was lifting the heaviest kind of thing and, and I was working on that. And then my first time at the gym after in my recovery after the whole CKG journey began. I remember it was a a hit session. And so you're going to different stations and you're doing short bursts of exercise. And the exercise was lifting a tyre and it was one of the smaller tyres. And, you know, you're supposed to flip the tyre, run to the other end of the tyre, flip it. And so you're doing this exercise for about 30 seconds. And I remember struggling to lift this tyre. And this was something that I would easily have done before. And somebody there that didn't know my situation said something really unhelpful and (laughs) to say the least, but my trainer knew what I was going through. And I just remember being in tears. I went out the room with him and saying to him, I used to be able to flip that no problem. And now I can't do it. I can't believe this. And it was just that whole loss of how I had seen myself all that time. Mm. You know, I was progressing, I was doing well. And then CKD had now come along and rubbed this from me. And it was just devastating to me. And then it was like I punished myself for so long for not being able to be who I used to be. Training four times a week, it was like I just totally discounted the fact that I'd started training once a week. and. And that was an achievement within itself. And I punished myself for ages. And even like in the first lockdown, I I managed to get to the point of training four times a week consistently. But in the end, you know, different situations happened. And I realized that actually I was putting too much pressure on myself. It wasn't healthy. I was a different person now. I had a different capability now. And it was okay that if All I was able to do this week is one time a week or two times a week or three times a week. That's fine. I don't need to be who I was before because I'm someone different now. And so for me, that process was very painful because to me, I saw anything less than four times a week who I used to be and what I used to be able to do. I saw that less than that as weakness and I realized I was wrong. It was not weaker. It was just different. Different. You see, the thing is, is people get focused on the goal. So in your head, the goal was four times a week. 
if I'm, I'm exercising four times a week and I'm doing greater weights than everybody else. But if we move away from the goals and think about your values, what you valued about exercise, you know, and I suspect that you may well have valued prioritizing your health about exercise. And that was the value in that. Yes, definitely. And so if you, even if you couldn't physically, because of changes in your physical self, couldn't exercise at that frequency, you can still live that value out in your life. You can still live a valued life doing something that you value that promotes your health. And that's what you've described. A lot of people will say they've lost. I'm not the person I was before. But I guess it's how you define that. If you're defining that person as your physical self, then you are not, you've got some changes in what your physical body is allowing you to do. But I guess thinking about what we talked about, you are so much more than just your physical self. This is so powerful. And I'm so honoured to be able to have this conversation with you today because this is something, me personally, being open and transparent now, this is something that I have struggled with myself. Mm. And... And so for anyone listening who's also had that struggle as well, I hope that by listening to this, that they get that hope and that encouragement and know that it does get better. It does get easier. There is hope. It isn't going to be like this forever. And there's so much more that you can do and that you can achieve than you even thought possible in the beginning. Mm. I mean, you know, when I first started back, like I said, and I struggled to flip that tyre, I really enjoy playing badminton and some sessions I'm burning 1,200, 1,300. One week I burnt 1,900 calories in one evening. I mean, that is colossal for, you know, it's a massive amount. I'm not saying I do that every time and every day, but what I'm mm. saying is I went from not being able to flip a small attire to being able to play badminton for a, a sustained amount of time. You're talking mm. probably eight games in one evening and burn that amount of calories. So I'm proof that it is possible. It doesn't happen overnight. And there might be times where you get frustrated or you're in tears or, or whatever, but it does get better. You stick with it, you're consistent, you will progress in one way or another. If you think back to that experience with the tyre, when you couldn't do it, and somebody said those sort of less helpful comments and you were really upset, at that point, if you had gone away and never gone, ever gone back to any activity, you know, if you'd just gone, I can't do this anymore. And I'm, I can't do any activity. I can't. It's all impossible. It's, it was embarrassing. Yeah, I feel humiliated. 
I can't put myself through that again. My body's not okay. Then you would have been caught up in those emotions forevermore and would have lost the value that you get from doing healthy activity and feeling like you are able to do something that's so meaningful to you. Might not be flipping a tire, but it's badminton. You know, and if you had run away, avoided, or just told yourself, well, activity's not for me anymore, you know, it would have closed off something that you value in your life. But to be able to do that thing that you valued in your life was not straightforward. It meant having to sit with those difficult emotions, to be able to sit with the the disappointment of the changes in your physical body, being able to actually deal with the fear of what your capacity would be now. And from that, you then, as you so eloquently explained, get to a place where actually you start to adjust and do things and even come out and do more than you ever imagined you were able to do beforehand. And there you go. That's the grief cycle. You can see that whole process playing out in that discussion. I guess as I've been talking, I've mentioned the word values a few times. And maybe it might be helpful to just spend a bit of time thinking about a bit more about what I mean by the word values. I think we often get quite focused on goals on what we achieve you know and then when a diagnosis comes along you think you know a lot of people it's quite normal to have a thought like my my life's over or you know I'm not going to be able to do all the things that I were able to do before and we get very hung up on those goals and achievements but values are something very different to that you know values are about what makes us up as a person it's like it's a direction to go in you know if you're thinking about what direction am I heading in you know it's a compass direction this is something that I think is really important to be as a person so you know for me personally being compassionate is one of my values one of my own core values is to be compassionate I don't achieve compassion. I'm never going to be 100% compassionate all the time. It's not a goal to achieve. It's a way of being to try and aim for. And there are lots of different values that people have. And if they can get in touch with their values and get a sense of what's important to them, then that helps with the goals, with planning, what you can still do despite having a diagnosis of a health condition. So when we talked about, you know, how important the goal of your fitness training was, the value underneath that was health. I guess maybe some other things as well. Yeah, I think consistency and dedication and 
self-control and yeah perseverance and yeah that ability to be able to set myself a goal and achieve it achievement yeah so you see you've got a set of values there you know perseverance achievement health and so those things were really important to you before you got a diagnosis. And I'm guessing you're still living a life now with those things in it. Can you think of some examples? I think for me, the biggest example of that would be this podcast. I have to be consistent. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of work that goes into making these episodes possible. And so for me, I'd say that is probably the biggest example of that aspect and part of myself, bringing something that is hopefully helping a lot of people. Yeah. And, yes. and also for what I went through when I was first diagnosed, for it to be worth it. Like yeah. it was really traumatic and difficult what I went through. And so for me, for nothing good to come out of it, it would have been a waste. You know, there had to be something good that came out of it. So for me, this, this was it. And there you are living your values. Yeah, no, you might not be throwing tyres. <laughs> I can't do that now, though. <laughs> <laughs> powerful stuff. Very, very powerful it stuff. It is. And thank you for opening up about it. Yeah. I, I think it, I think this isn't therapy. Yeah. We've talked beforehand about what we were going to talk about today. But it also gives a flavor to people maybe listening of the sorts of conversations that people might have if they went to see somebody to talk about these sorts of issues. Absolutely. And I really think it is important that people do. Where I am in terms of how I feel and my grief process and going through everything that I've been through is because I personally have had counsel. I have mm -hmm. had sessions with a counsellor. I've had sessions with a renal psychologist as well. And so, you know, I'm not here because I've just had a positive attitude. I'm here because I have had help and support. And I think we really need to normalise that. I think mm -hmm. sometimes and within certain communities, getting that help can be frowned on and seen as a weakness or seen something negative. But I think... Or shameful. Yeah. Almost it's shameful to actually admit that I'm struggling with this stuff. But we need to normalise it and we need we people to be able to be free to seek that help because the consequences of it are way, way more damaging. So, um, so yes, I'm definitely an advocate for people getting their mental health and support that they need. Yeah. So finally, could you give a word of encouragement to 
the listeners, somebody who might be at the beginning of their journey or even somebody that's been on the journey for a long time, but they're still finding it difficult, they're still struggling. What encouragement do you have for them? I guess I think I probably steal something from another writer, from Matt Haig, who talks about the fact that you're on a journey, but when you're in the valley, you can't actually see how far you've come. And it's only as you start to move up the mountain that you look back and you find out how far you've come on that journey. So if you are in that dark place, it's to remember that it is a valley. And this is a journey that will have both mountains and valleys, and that that it is normal to have both better times and slightly more difficult times. But that, like all the emotions we've talked about today, they're not there forever. If you can sit with them and stay with them, that they can pass and you can come out the other side. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing this process as for me, oh, so powerful, so, so encouraging. And mm-hmm. I really know, like speaking personally, it has yeah. helped me definitely having yeah. this conversation with you that. today. I was like, I was like, <laughs> why did you get And um, I know I'm confident that it will help so many other people who have a chronic illness and are going through this process. So Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing this powerful, powerful advice, encouragement and information. Thank you so much. Oh, no, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every other Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kitty Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope and love.